How do you know something happened with certainty? Unless you saw it happen with your own eyes, you really don't. But in our day-to-day -day lives, the stakes of knowing, of absolutely knowing, are not as severe as a murder trial. In a murder trial, the decision will affect lives forever, the lives of the victim's family and the defendant and their family. What do you trust? Science? Yesterday's science can be invalidated by today's scientific breakthrough. Witnesses? Unless they saw the crime occur directly, and sometimes even if they did, witnesses can be biased or hampered by issues of recall. And what happens if some of the evidence strongly suggests innocence, but some of it strongly suggests guilt? What if everything in your gut tells you the verdict should be a certain way, but the evidence seems to say otherwise? How do you really know? How can you know for sure? In 1985, in Texas, three teenagers were brutally murdered. There were multiple credible suspects with criminal histories, potential motives, and connections to the victims. But only one man was ultimately convicted of the crime, Ronald Trimboli. It would take three trials to convict him, the third of which involved a brand new technology for investigating crime, a DNA test. Ronald Trimboli had no history of violent crime. Though the only theory of his motive was sexual, the charge of sexual assault in the crime was ultimately dropped. And the timeline and circumstantial evidence that pointed to his guilt would be challenged by subsequent reporting by credible journalists. But that DNA test? It was a match. So here's the question. Is it possible Ronald Trimboli's DNA could match and he could be innocent of the crime? I'm Ben McKenzie. This is In the Blood. That was the way most of the neighbors thought of 14-year-old Danielle and 12-year-old Renee Lemire. Their bodies were discovered in their West Arlington home last night, along with that of a house guest, 17-year-old John Bradley. All had been stabbed to death. Apparently, they had been bound and gagged before they were murdered. when we first met and, and it, it, it really is, um, you know, I did, I told him my dad was being tried for murder uh, of three teenagers and he didn't do it. And that's how we started that conversation. Um, when we, when we sat at that booth. When I first met her, we were sitting in a booth at the pizza joint and just not even knowing each other yet, introductions, and she just breaks right into her father's case and what's going on with her father. Well, in the beginning, I was like anybody else. You know, it was a, it was a sad story. It was a tough spot for her dad to be in. You know, she said he didn't do it, but, you know, who am I to judge that? I, I have no clue. That's Mark and Lisa Dufour. Lisa is Ronald's daughter, and Mark is her husband. I'm Dan Benamore. I produced this podcast, spending the better part of a year learning everything I could about this story. When Lisa and Mark met for the first time, she already had the dark cloud of her father's situation hanging over her head. And Mark would wind up taking it on with her, far more than he could have initially anticipated. I'm playing devil's advocate. You know, the same old story, if the cops wouldn't do this, if this wasn't this, and they wouldn't arrest him if they didn't have evidence, the whole bit. 
I had the same reaction as Mark when I first heard this story. I assumed Lisa's father was probably guilty, especially if there was a DNA test that was a match. I assumed, like any good daughter, Lisa just wanted to believe the best about her dad. But then I started reading and reviewing documents, and I started talking to people. And like many others you'll hear interviewed on this podcast, the story just wouldn't let me go. So I went to Arlington, Texas, and I stood outside the house where the crime took place. The same house from the crime scene video and news reports, which hasn't changed much in almost 40 years. And like so many other things I'd see, hear, and learn about in this case, something about it just didn't sit right with me. And I wanted to understand why. I'm standing right outside the house where the murders took place. It's incredible how close this house is to other houses. You, less than a stone's throw. Six feet, eight feet, not far at all. This is a, a dense neighborhood. The houses are all close to each other. I can't understand how something like this could have happened here without everybody in the surrounding houses hearing it. Doesn't appear to have changed since 1985. Looks the way it probably did back then. Today, it's sunny. So many years later, you just wouldn't want to believe that something like this could happen in a neighborhood like this. It's, it looks so nice. It looks like anybody's neighborhood. Looks like my neighborhood. What was Arlington, Texas like in 1985? In 85, Arlington was mainly... A, Six Flags? They would call it a bedroom community. Most people that lived here would commute to either Dallas or Fort Worth to work. As far as the entertainment industry at that time, there was Six Flags over Texas and there was the Texas Rangers baseball. You're looking at a population in 85 of around 150,000 people. And it's grown to over 400,000 today. So it was in the beginnings of the of that growth and the tax incentives that Texas had put up for businesses to relocate. Uh, American Airlines came from New York. The Boy Scouts of America came from New York. Other companies came and Arlington was kind of smack dab in the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth. Now, obviously... I wasn't here looking at this specific neighborhood and house where the crime took place in 1985. Maybe it was different then, but Lisa was here. So I asked her. All right. So we're right next to the house where the murders took place. Right. And what did this, what was different about this back in 1985? Hardly anything's different. The only thing that's a little different is it's not as well taken care of. It was, it was like, the grass and it wasn't so you know but it's not different there's nothing different mm -hmm. nothing at all and this is the front door so this is where would be the front mm -hmm. and then that is the girl's bedroom that window, Second window right there first bedroom was where danielle that was found mm -hmm. that first window before any bodies were found the night before the crime when everyone in the home was still alive and well, they got a strange visit in the middle of the night from a neighbor down the street. 
Ronald Trimboli. Ronald's infant son was sick. He said his phone was not working, and he told the girl's mother, Joanne, he needed to use the telephone to call his doctor's answering service. Remember, this was 1985. Ronald came by the house first at around 2 a.m. and then at around 5 a.m. This unusual detail would not go unnoticed by Detective Jim Ford, one of the investigators who worked on the case. My name is Jim Edward Ford, and I'm a police detective with the Arlington Police Department. Detective Ford, by all accounts, was a hardworking, determined detective. Well, I know this, this sounds kind of corny. Uh, you'll have to excuse my, my Texas terms, but that's just the way that I talk. Um, I, I just, uh, I get a feeling of satisfaction from doing something good for somebody besides myself. I feel like that I'm very privileged to be allowed to be involved in this. The Arlington Police Department has been wonderful to me over the years, and they've given me lots of opportunities that I may have never had before, and uh, I'm very appreciative of that, and I hope I can continue to be doing this for a long time uh, until they carry me off or something. But I guess it's the self-satisfaction. Uh, you know, it's, it's a love-hate thing. You know, you hate seeing the tragedy, and you hate cases that that you haven't solved. You know, you hate to see the, the looks on the family, you know, when you give them an update and you tell them that you don't have anything. You know, you hate to be the deliverer of bad news, um, you know, and things like that. So it's a love-hate thing, but, but when you can be a part of solving one, I mean, it's, it's the, the thrill, the, there's nothing like it. Not any other experience I've ever had is like the, the thrill of, of being directly involved in solving, uh, you know, a murder case. This is how Detective Ford explains the Twilight Calls on June 17th of 1985. Tramboli said that about two o'clock in the morning that uh, he woke up with the child. The child was, was sick. Uh, he tried to use the telephone. Tramboli says that the telephone at their residence didn't work at, at 2 a.m. And this is on uh, June the 17th, uh, you know, the date of the offense. And so uh, he says that uh, he got in his car, drove down the alley. There's an alley behind these duplexes uh, where there's carports. And drove down the alley, knocked on the door, and uh, spoke with Joanne. She let him in, and he used the telephone, called the answering service for, I believe it was Dr. Varga's office. And uh, while he was in there, he noticed that John Bradley was sleeping on the, the couch. The couch pulled out and made a bed or something, and John Bradley was on the couch. Then uh, Tremboli went home, uh, decided to call the answering service at Dr. Varga's office again about 5 a.m., and telephoned at Tremboli's residence still wouldn't work, so he went back down and, and Joanne let him back in. He used the telephone again at 5 a.m. Tremboli told us that uh, he got a hold of uh, the answering service and ultimately the doctor's office or someone at the doctor's office and made an appointment to bring the child in at 8.30 a.m. on June the 17th, you know, just about three hours later. 
Uh, he's, uh, Trimboli says he went back home. He and his wife took the baby to the doctor about 8.30 a.m. They, they got home about 10.30 a.m. For a neighbor to come by and enter someone's home to make a phone call at 2 and 5 a.m. seems very strange today in our era of cell phones especially. Was it just as strange back in 1985? No, I think it, I think the uh, I think it was the same. I think the, the, the environment was the same then as it is now. But according to Lisa, Ronald only went to Joanne after exhausting other options. Yeah, because originally he didn't go to Joanne's house to use the phone. He went originally around the corner to J.P. Folk's uh, pay phone. Which was a convenience store. Yeah, right. Tell a con- it. Yeah, it was a convenience store. It was called J.P. Folks, and it was a convenience store um, that was a block, maybe a block and a, and a half up the street from where he lived. And he went there first. But when he drove over there, there was a bunch of kids hanging out by the pay phone or hanging out there, and he wasn't comfortable. So he came, he drove back over to the duplex and DC was outside with the baby, you know, what most moms do is like, okay, let's go outside and get some fresh air. It is June and it's a nice night. So uh, maybe that'll calm you down, you know, cause you're so darn fussy, let's get some air. And um, so when he came back, she was holding the baby, standing in front and I guess looked up and saw that Joanne's bedroom light was on and he said, she said, well, Joanne's light's on. Why don't you go up there and see if she'll let you use the phone? So that's why he did it. It wasn't like it was his initial thought. He didn't go to his parents' house. He lived just about six blocks, seven blocks down from where he lived. Right. Well, that would have been his last choice, believe me. He didn't want to hear it from his mother. (laughs) You know, my grandmother would have been on his ass about, well, you're not taking care of this baby. An important piece of context here that you will learn much more about in later episodes is that the Trimboli family and Joanne's family were well acquainted. The two families knew each other and had known each other for years at that time. So while showing up in the wee hours of the morning obviously was unusual, it wasn't as if Ronald was some total stranger appearing at Joanne's door. The exact timeline of when Ronald took his infant to the doctor would later become an important subject of debate. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Joanne Lemieux said Ronald asked for a glass of water during one of his visits. Also according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Joanne later left for work at 7.30 a.m., locking the front and back doors, but not checking on her daughters, whom she assumed were asleep. She would call to check in at 10 a.m. and then throughout the day and early evening, not getting a response. Joanne would later arrive home around 10 p.m. and discover her daughter Renee's body in a bathroom and call the police before discovering Danielle's body in Joanne's bedroom. The police arrived and investigated only two bodies. Well, when I got there at the scene, of course, uh, patrol officers had already responded um, along with patrol supervisors and a, a night detective that was on duty at that time. And patrol already had the, the residents taped off of crime scene tape. And uh, of course, we're canvassing the neighborhood, going door to door, knocking on doors and talking with people. 
Crime scene investigators had responded to the scene. They had all already made uh, an initial walkthrough of the residence and uh, basically were standing by uh, for my arrival to uh, direct the investigation. I was escorted into the residence by the crime scene investigators that had already been in the residence. And uh, we made a, a complete sweep of the house uh, to check for any additional bodies. And in fact, we did find a third body that had not been originally discovered. And this body was uh, closed up in the closed uh, utility room inside the residence. And that was the body of, of John Bradley. When questioned by police, Ronald Trimboli would first claim, as written in his official statement, quote, I have only been in Joanne's house about two or three times since they moved in. I have never been in the bathroom, bedrooms, utility rooms, and I have never touched the washer or dryer. There's an XXX and then what looks like an addition at the bottom, which states, quote, I would like to add that within the last three months, I have taken a tour of Joanne's house and I may have walked around the house into the bedrooms and the utility room." End quote. Someone changing their story in this fashion, it would stand a reason, might make the police suspicious. Ronald's timeline of when exactly he took his baby to the doctor also seemed inexact, as referenced by his wife, Denise Dotson, who signed a statement of her own. But her statement also detailed how Ron was with her the entire day, except for a brief period of time when she took her daughter Hope to a friend's house. In her statement, Denise says, I don't ever remember his being out of my presence that morning, except for the short time that I was gone delivering Hope to Nicole's house. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Ronald Trimboli would describe that period of time as 10 minutes, and Denise would repeatedly point out that there was no way her husband could have gone down the street, killed three teenagers, and returned home without her knowing or seeing anything. Also in her statement, she says, there is an issue of Ron saying that he was at the doctor's office at 8.30 in the morning. I have no explanation for this, other than he was confused due to being up all night with the baby. We asked Denise, who goes by DC, about her statement. My name is Denise Lynn Dawson, and Ronald Trimboli was my husband. Everybody called her Dennis. No, it's Denise. <laughs> it's a French name. <laughs> Denise Darcel is the name of a French movie star. Ta-da! <laughs> so that's where we got our name. My story hasn't changed. I can't change my story. I can only tell you the story how I remember it. And it, it just doesn't make sense. I can't place him there. I can't. The, the point that I got to get across to everybody is me. Knowing Ron the way he was, I lived with him, I had his child, I went through the court case with him and everything. He has a daughter that is still backing him up. We would not be talking today if that wasn't the case. I would be telling you today, I don't want to talk about it. The SOB did what he did, he got what he got for it, and that's it, drop it. But if that's not the story, it's not. And like yeah. I told Lisa, there's nobody, you, her, or anybody else, no lawyer, is going to convince me that he did it. I will take that to my grave. 
Detective Ford's theory was that the sexual assault of Danielle may have been the primary motive of the killer. All three victims uh, were in three different parts of the house, which could indicate that perhaps at least some of them were asleep at the time uh, that the entry was made. Um, they were all three very brutally killed, uh, which could also indicate uh, that the suspect is known and, and uh, perhaps there's some, some uh, personal uh, anger involved there as well as is concealing his identity by, by killing the suspects, or excuse me, killing the, the victims. And then, of course, there was a sexual assault, an obvious sexual assault of, of Danielle, uh, which can indicate that perhaps uh, she was the primary target of the offense. Danielle's sexual assault, like almost everything in this case, would also be the subject of debate later on. What no one could debate was that these three teenagers had been murdered in an incredibly violent, methodical, and surprisingly undetected fashion given the close proximity of other homes. Detective Ford didn't find it surprising, however. No, that didn't surprise me so much because uh, things do happen all the time where, where there's, there's no witnesses, uh, there's just no one outside at the time to see anything and there's not enough noise made perhaps. And uh, also if it was committed by someone who lived in the neighborhood, uh, they could simply just walk up to the residence and, and make entry. There wouldn't be a, a, a big production for somebody to see uh, and this type of thing. So no, it wasn't surprising to me. The medical examiner would not arrive until nine hours later, according to an article from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. In the same article, Chief Medical Examiner Nizam Pirwani is quoted from his eventual testimony as saying, quote, Police agencies are required to call us as soon as the body is found, end quote. Investigator James L. Kirkpatrick would also later testify that the delay impeded his attempts to pinpoint the time of death. Pirwani would roughly estimate, according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, that the murders occurred sometime between 7.30 a.m. and noon. When exactly the murders took place would prove a critical question in the investigation. Detective Ford had a perspective on the timing of the process. Well, in this particular case, we had three bodies, which in itself is unusual. So there's going to be three times the work and it's gonna take three times as long. Um, in addition to that, we had a, a, a very bloody crime scene and that's gonna slow things down even, even more because we have to use more care not to disturb any evidence that, that was there. And uh, plus, since this was a triple murder and uh, we didn't have a suspect uh, in custody at, uh, on the scene at that time and initially had no idea who the suspect might be, we wanted to be as, as thorough as we could. That's why we used the blood uh, splatter pattern technique. That's why we videotaped the entire crime scene. In addition to videotaping, uh, 35 millimeter photographs were taken, uh, you know, from from every uh, feasible angle. That's why we went to the extra trouble to try to do everything possible. And because of that, it took a lot longer than we normally do. According to reporting from both the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and Dallas Magazine, Renee's feet had been bound with tan pantyhose, her hands tied with electrical cord, and another pair of pantyhose used as a gag 
she was stabbed nine times. Danielle was found nude from the waist down, stabbed in the neck, back, and chest, her hands bound with a skirt strap. John Bradley's ankles were bound by a strap from a robe, his hands were tied with green electrical cord, and he was gagged by a sock tied to a bra and stabbed six times. I didn't just read these details on paper. In Texas, I watched the crime scene video. I've uh, just watched the crime scene video. It's so horrible. It's so, you know, it's one thing to hear about it. It's one thing to hear it explained to you, but to actually see it, you know, it's just such a horrible thing. And you can't watch that and think this is a person or persons who, who did this, who haven't done something like this before. The binding, gagging, and just the, the level of violence of it is so severe and depraved. It's just, it was really hard to watch. And um, honestly, I think as much as anything else I've heard about the story is what gives me doubt, you know, that I, I just can't see how a person could do that and not have some previous incident that at least suggested they were capable of something like this in their history. It's just uh, one of the toughest things I've ever had to watch. My conclusion that whomever committed this crime had definitely done something like this before was shared by Hugh Atwell, formerly of the Arlington Police Department. I spoke to Hugh Atwell, now retired, about this story. Uh, Hugh, H-U-G-H, Atwell, A-P-W-E-L-L. And I was the commander of the Arlington Police Department Major Case Unit at the time of the investigation. I, you know, when, you, when you're a retired investigator, it's kind of like you're surrounded by ghosts, you know? Uh, you, it's hard to even drive down the street because you look over there and say, oh yeah, I know about it. I served a tour in Vietnam and uh, uh, being exposed to a lot of trauma before ever being a police officer, I think that helped me out. So I think I might have been a little bit uniquely prepared to, to do this job without it affecting me. And and I learned early on that it was not pleasant to come home and bring this kind of stuff home with you. As a matter of fact, um, I wouldn't even watch news. I, I, I found that if I limited myself to the amount of trauma in the world, because I had a certain, there's a lot of necessary trauma out there that I had to be exposed to, that I had to be a part of. I purposely limited the my amount of trauma. And also, I purposed to be around good people when I wasn't having to do the uh, uh, my job. Uh, I, I was a member of church and people that, that uh, were lovable and that loved you, and that was so important. I specifically asked Hugh his thoughts on a crime that was so violent and so meticulous from someone who didn't have a history of violence. 
Yeah, and, and I and I understand exactly what you're saying, and, and I'm, I'm to be brutally honest with you, I feel and and did feel the same way. That is the one uh, uh, thing that uh, that bugged me throughout this. Um, now he was he was not a local guy. Uh, he had uh, relocated, if I, my memory is correct, from somewhere in New Jersey. Looking at that crime scene, you automatically have to say, this is not this guy's first time. Exactly. That's the exact same thing that I thought when I looked at it, yeah. And uh, um, this guy uh, was kind of organized. He knew what he was doing. And um, uh, it was, um, you're right, it was, it was unusually brutal uh, to the point where you um, feel pretty sure there was that he was doing torturing. And uh, it had to be a horrendous, a horrendous thing uh, that went on in there. And uh, the fact that he was able to control three people so completely and so fast, uh, you know, that, that shows that he put a lot of thought into this. It's not something that, uh, that, that one would do right off the cuff. It, you, you would have had to organize that. And one was a post-adolescent young man who uh, I think he probably considered himself kind of a tough guy. You know, he was not a, uh, you know, he's kind of a streetwise kid from everything I know, know about him just controlling him uh, you know he had to have really been able to know how to intimidate until he could uh, get him uh, under restraint hugh is referring there to john bradley you'll learn more about john's history in the next episodes i tried very hard to get the authorities in new jersey to um, help me out and 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 go through their files and see if we could find anything similar because mm-hmm. They're successful uh, in using a particular method. They'll they'll repeat themselves. I could get no cooperation at all from uh, from any of the uh, law enforcement agencies up there. I tried the state. I tried local, where he grew up, where he was. You know, just just because we don't have a record of it, don't mean he didn't do it. You know what I mean? And that was that was very frustrating because uh, with the DNA left behind and his proximity to the to the crime scene. I was confident we had we had the guy, but like you and many probably many others, uh, the fact that he didn't have that that kind of a violent record, you know, that was bothersome. Hugh wonders here if perhaps Ronald did have a violent history, but they just weren't able to get his full records to confirm it. At this point, in addition to the months I've spent researching this story, I've also read the trial transcripts, incredible long-form reporting from Dallas Magazine and the Fort Worth Star Telegram. Not to mention doing many interviews with people who knew Ron. Ron was not a perfect guy by any means, and we'll get into all of that in our next episode. But it seems very clear that he lacks the kind of violent criminal history that would logically connect to this crime. But to Detective Ford, at the end of the day, the conclusion was plain. This is a very simple case. He lies about when he went to the doctor. He says he took uh, his child to the doctor at 8.30 a.m. when we know it was uh, 11 a.m. He's trying to establish his alibi. When we interview him, he lies uh, about ever touching any appliance in the residence. He says that he's never been in the utility room. He says that he's never touched the washer or dryer. Uh, He refuses to give us a blood sample. He refuses to take a polygraph test. 
When we confront him after finding out that his fingerprints and his palm prints are on the washer top in such a position that the suspect uh, would leave those prints while supporting himself to lean down and to stab John Bradley, Tremboli's only response is that you're just mistaken. Those aren't my prints. I mean, obviously, Ronald Tremboli committed this, this brutal crime. Is it simple? Is it obvious? Almost every element Detective Ford cites there, including the timeline of events, would be challenged in the course of the subsequent trials. For example, it turned out multiple witnesses saw the girls alive later that day. And at least one jury would definitely not agree it was simple. If it was a simple case, why did it ultimately take three trials to convict Ronald Trimboli? To understand how Ronald Trimboli was convicted, and why there is credible reason to doubt his guilt, you have to understand the man. You have to understand his flaws. Ronald Trimboli was a lot of things. A charismatic, irresponsible, beloved, reckless, small-time hustler. A man whom everyone seemed to like, even some of the people he'd talk out of their own money. But also a man who had no history of violence and no history of sexual assault. On the next episode, you'll learn about Ronald's colorful life and why the justice system was already familiar with him. But you'll also learn about the two other most significant suspects in the case, whose criminal histories include charges of sexual assault of minors, stabbing, and murder. John Bradley told the police that he was in fear for his life because one of these men had threatened to, quote, get even with me no matter what he had to do. That's next time. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Derlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.